When I was in junior high, uh, one of our teachers that we had left the room during class. It became a time for us to express some freedom. And uh, being the cut up that I was, I enjoyed that freedom. And when the teacher walked back in, in the room, it was just the time that my mouth was open, caught me making trouble. He proceeded with his 300-pound body to follow me into his office and to squat me. Uh, it was like a metal I-beam on my backside. The sting of my rear end reminded me of stopping my foolishness, at least for that season. <laughs> the book of Hosea is like being taken to the woodshed because of the foolishness and idolatrous behavior of the Israelites. Will they wake up and realize how foolish they've been? We looked at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 last week. Hear the word, O Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. How does a land mourn? It's a way of saying that the spiritual destitution of Israel was having physical, a physical impact upon the earth. It's really not a very far-fetched concept. There's clear evidence, if you just look at it yourself, of seeing the physical effects that, let's say, stress and emotional turmoil has upon your bodies. We know that that takes place. That's easily acceptable. But land is not our body. Yet the earth is the Lord's, and we're to be stewards of the earth. Human beings are. And so it would not be so far-fetched to think that humans um, have this relationship with the earth or the land. In fact, I think it would be more outrageous to think that what we do has no impact upon the earth. Job told his friends in Job 12 that the plants and the animals can tell you something. They're indicators of what we're doing as humans. This impact that sin has upon the earth is not new to Scripture. Consider Isaiah's words about a worldwide judgment. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Jeremiah speaks of the same thing when he says, How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? 
For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. The land was responding to disobedience. It's a reminder to us that sin has more consequence than how we realize. We don't have control of the consequence. We can't just package it and put it back where we got it from. It just happens. It's kind of like a moral absolute law of living in a moral universe that God has created. Did you catch the phrase, all who dwell in it languish? Languish is the idea of drying up, of withering. It's kind of like uh, when you think of this happening to the land, I think of a rock band that has a concert in a town. It rents a hotel room. And you've heard stories of it trashing the hotel room because of late night parties going on. It's kind of like that, right? This is the state of the earth and what it's like after humans are done with it. It has an impact, an effect. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest, You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. Verse 4 says, It is no use having the people give a defense or contending with the charges. The evidence is plain. It is convincing. What may surprise you is where the blame lands. He speaks of the prophets. He speaks of the priests being primarily responsible for the sin of the nation. Now, the priest represents the people before God in making sacrifices. The prophet represents God before the people in speaking to them the word of God. In both cases... They were stumbling. They were not doing their jobs. They were negligent 24-7. By day and by night, the religious leaders of Israel failed. Stumbling actually speaks of moral shortcomings. That could be a variety of things. One of the things we know is that the religious leaders were more committed to their human king than God. They loved their politics more than they loved God. Could we not have a whole sermon on that? Here's a fitting description from Isaiah. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. And then Jeremiah puts it succinctly, both prophet and priest are ungodly, even in my house. I found their evil, declares the Lord. And then Jeremiah 6.13 speaks of the greed of the priest and the prophet. The Old and New Testament both warn against the greed of religious leaders and that this hampers their influence. 
Your mother is a reference to the nation of Israel or the people as a whole. This is not the first time Hosea has used it. Hosea 2.2 and 2.5, the mother is to be pled with to repent and quit playing the role of the whore. The point is, is that they were, they were worshiping idols, worshiping something they shouldn't have been, loving something they shouldn't have been. They should have been devoted to Yahweh God, but they weren't. We could say it this way. As the spiritual leadership goes, so goes the people. When Israel was healthy, the spiritual leadership hear from God or speak from God regardless of the personal cost or whether the people like it or not. The leaders are faithful to God. When a nation or a church is unhealthy and the leaders are are then pressed to please the people. People are upset that the leaders are not placating to them. And they push and they cajole until they get the leaders to follow. It's the case of the tail wagging the dog. The leaders are also self-serving, doing the service they provide to fit their own needs and not fulfilling the call that God has upon their lives. Here's the scary thing. You don't always see it. You don't always know it. We should be accountable, speaking of spiritual leaders, but some spiritual leaders can fool a congregation. But you can never fool God. There will always be a price to pay. Leaders should be accountable. I have accountability with our elders. Uh, We meet as a staff. I have accountability with other pastors that we meet with. But a guy can lie. But God will still know. And God told others in James that they shall incur a stricter judgment. Teachers will. That there's a price to pay if you screw up with this and you take it lightly. Do I really need to illustrate this with modern examples? I think we're all aware of leaders today using religious entities to fill their egos and to fill their wallets. I think we know it happens. Certainly not everyone. And I would say the vast majority of the pastors I know are are faithful and trying to do it right. But you've always got some guys that aren't. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Notice the downfall of the people. Okay, It was not because they were not in the right educational institution. It was not because they were listening to the wrong political party or the wrong political party was in power. It was not because they weren't in the right income bracket. It was because they rejected knowledge. That doesn't mean that they turned off jeopardy and they were rejecting being educated. It was a specific kind of knowledge And the context tells us it was the knowledge of God. It caused them to forget the law, God's injunctions to his people. And we live in a time in which character is formed by cultural values 
and not God's instruction. The people should be teaching the knowledge of God and doing it. They were not. As a result, God was removing them, the priests and the prophets, from having influence upon the people. Why? Because they wanted to be liked, and they were easily manipulated. You know, there are hot buttons today that if preachers speak about them and hit the right notes, they can appeal to a conservative crowd or appeal to a progressive crowd, if that's their congregation. And if you don't hit those notes, if you don't sing that song, some will be vilified, misunderstood, criticized. But when the preacher is doing his job, and I would say teacher or Christian who speaks truth, okay, you will not satisfy either side of the political spectrum because the Bible cuts through human systems. The word of God cuts through the bone and moral, reaches into the hearts, exposes us, regardless of our political stances. And because both are made up of sin, both have, of, of people who sin, both have faults. It's then we have to learn, listen, to be more submissive to God's wisdom and not be resistant, but humbly submissive to him when we see hypocrisy or we see contradiction or we see a system of thinking not consistent with the word of God, God's word should always win that fight, right? But people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, lack of submission to his wisdom. And Hosea is saying because of the rejection of their knowledge, the priests would be removed from their office by the Lord. Because the priests ignored the law, God would ignore their children, meaning they would not inherit their father's office, much like Eli's family did. The future of the priestly line would be cut off. The priests would no longer have the right to serve. Verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. Here's the travesty of the situation when you have a corrupt religion, or at least corrupt system. I suppose you could have a, not the religion necessarily is corrupt, but the system, the, the way that people are wielding it can be corrupt. Those can be two different things. One would expect that if you have an increase in priests, an increase in prophets, then uh, that's, that's P-H-E-T-S. If you have an increase in prophets, that there's going to be a better society. What Hosea is saying is that the more priests, the more prophets, the worse it gets. That's a sad case. They had a negative impact upon the nation's moral climate. In Israel, the more priests meant more corruption and greater sin. Shame replaces honor for being a priest and a prophet. Shame replaces honor. 
The Ravi Zacharias ministry has been shaken to the core with findings that have been confirmed that for years, Zacharias has had inappropriate sexual relationships with multiple women in multiple countries over the years. And the organization is now faced with changing its name to distance itself from its founder. Publishers are dropping his books and famous authors are eradicating his name from their bibliography because they don't want to use him even as source material. Glory changed into shame. Now listen, it's not to jump on Ravi Zacharias. It's easy to point the finger and say, well, how dare he? Now here's the thing you got to remember. You wonder how did God use him and all of that. That's for God to work on, all right? God could bless his ministry, not bless the man. The greater question is, how can God use any of us, right? No, what he did was wrong, and he'll pay for it. He'll have a loss of reward. I, I, I don't understand all the implications. And certainly his family is paying a high price for it and that ministry. But the point is, I can't get all high and mighty about it because I realize I, I'm amazed that God uses me. I was telling somebody the other day, I can't believe our church even exists. I mean that seriously. All the issues we've gone through, uh, the, the stupid mistakes I've made, how does the church even exist but by the grace of God? The priesthood grew in number, but instead of bringing greater devotion to Yahweh, it brought greater idolatry. The more the priests increased, the more people sinned against me. Listen, bigger is not better in cases of inappropriate behavior. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of the Lord shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, to a stone, this is reference to an idol, you gave me birth, for they turned their back to me and not their face. From the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you. In your time of trouble, for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Things got so bad that Hosea had to point out that the priests are using the sacrificial system to line their own pockets. More sin meant more sacrifice. More sacrifices meant more portions of the offerings going to the priests to keep for themselves. Now, they were legally able and should have done that. Uh, we read in Leviticus, at least keep a portion, that as asked, and the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered, and every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it, and every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. So in the twisted think 
thinking of the priests, more sin meant more for him. Greed was the real motive of the religious leaders. Now, this is not a case of, you know, priests not being adequately paid. And you know how you read of uh, employees stealing from an employer, and usually it's because they have a grievance or feel like they're not paid enough, and so it's a problem with every employer as employees will take money because they don't think they're getting the fair shake of things. This was not the case. They were just greedy. Now, it's never right to steal, but I'm just saying it's not the case that the priests were underpaid. In verse 4, the priests and the people are seen as litigants, and here in verses 9 and 10, they share a common punishment. They want to be free from God, free from his wisdom, free from his injunctions, and they are separating themselves from his blessing. Therefore, they're going to experience judgment. Listen, there is no clergy pass out of the impending calamity. Yahweh threatened, I will punish them for their ways. He's clear about this. I think this passage is a warning sign to any church and any pastor to consider its relationship and allegiance to the word of God. If a pastor does his job, he will get vilified from a variety of people because God's word speaks to all aspects of life. And it's an equal opportunity employer when it comes to conviction. He'll be accused of being political by applying the scripture because it touches on points that are not garnered by a political spectrum, political force that maybe congregants believe in. The job is not to be political, but to be biblical. People who hear with political ears, not biblical ears, have a hard time hearing the Bible speak to things that are against their political leanings. However, our allegiance is not to this kingdom here, not to a party. Our kingdom is not of this earth. When a pastor is doing his job, he may speak about money when stewardship is called for in the scripture or giving. And then some are going to say, well, that's all a church does is talk about money. Why? Because they're probably brought under conviction. And some pastors will shy away from addressing the topic for fear of criticism. I mean, how can the same pastor get criticism that he's not addressing the times by one person and another say he's being too political? It's because of the paradigm that people are hearing. When the pastor seeks to please the naysayers, when a pastor can easily be manipulated, here's what his choices are. One, he can go crazy. He can quit. And by the way, they're quitting now in greater numbers than we've ever seen in the past, at least in our recent history. He can be a puppet. Or he can keep his sights on something else that Paul shared with a young pastor. He said this, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy 
and for quarrels with words. It, you heard anybody quarrel recently in the, on TV in the political spectrum? I don't because I turn it off, so I enjoy that so much more. Which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. For if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, it's not money itself, it's where your heart is, where your heart is headed, headed, the trajectory of your life. If that's money, it's a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what do you see from this passage? Hey, Timothy, teach the word. Keep your message on the sound words of Jesus. Don't wrangle about stuff that doesn't build up, that doesn't help the kingdom. Be humble. Don't be a jerk and a know-it-all. Don't get caught up with using your religious organization to just gain money. But be content. And by the way, if you're just using it to go after money, it'll ruin you. 2 Timothy 1 says, to guard what has been entrusted to you. You see a pattern here, First and 2 Timothy, what the focus is? Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit. Chapter 2 says to entrust the word to other people. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It is never a pastor's job to grow a church. You do not see that injunction given to a pastor. The injunction is to preach the word to disciple the people and you let the Holy Spirit grow the church. Focus on the things you can control. If you try to control growing the church, then it becomes so much more of an entertainment show on the stage. Lights, action, here we go, baby. Bring up the hydraulics. Bring up the smoke. Here we go. Chapter 3 warns that there'll come a day when this is exactly what happens. And people just want to hear what they want to hear. They don't come for the word. Listen, it doesn't make us any better, any worse. I'm not trying to set us apart from this church, that church. But I'm just saying, when you just stay with the meat and the potatoes of the word, there's a price to pay for that. But what Israel was doing is, man, it was going for the gold set God's word aside. And Paul says, your job, young pastor Timothy, is to stay close to the sacred writings of the word of God. That as God breathes and, and able to do the supernatural work of ministry, Paul was not racing to be approved by men. 
He was laboring to receive a reward from God. And the fact is, again, I've said it before, you cannot do your job. And this is true as a Christian. I don't want to just set pastors apart, but it's true as a Christian, if you're living your life doing what you should be doing, you will be misunderstood, criticized, and judged. Because when you stand for the truth, you speak the truth, that's what's going to happen. This is not a martyr complex. This is a reality check. Praise God if you are reviled. Praise God if you are persecuted. Right? Just like I told these couples earlier, there's no guarantee about this child. I told one who was married this week, there's no guarantee your marriage will last even though you do the right things. Wait a minute, minute, Kevin, I thought if I did the right things, my spouse will love me. No. Would you show me that chapter and verse? Because that's not there. And yet we think it's some kind of magic formula. If I'm obedient, then it's all going to turn out. Now, I want the marriage to turn out. I pray for it to turn out. But sometimes spouses will leave. But what do I do then? Christ is still my life. And I can still be content. Even in the midst of that, I lose my job. The doctor says I got cancer. A lot of things can happen. I lose a child. The marriage falls apart. Praise God that I'm reviled persecuted for the trials. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. This is from the same guy who got shipwrecked. This is from the same guy who got stoned more than once, left for dead, beaten, jailed, and eventually was martyred. You know, I don't buy into the notion that uh, Christians who use military metaphors are trying to incite violence. Uh, The Bible uses military metaphors. I mean, words matter, but common sense tells us that when the Bible talks about being a good soldier or being a prepared boxer, it's not calling us to violence. I mean, come on. Paul wrote that we're to be like soldiers whose only care is to please the one who enlisted us. We're to be like an athlete and not cutting corners, but competing honorably. We're to be like a farmer who gets up early and and works hard to see the fruit of his labor. The point is, the life of faith is one of sacrifice. It's not one of comfortability. It can be hard. It can be strenuous. It's not just all blessing. I love the blessing. I look forward to the blessing. It can keep me in the game. But that's not all of it. You know what sometimes it's like? It's having to admit you're wrong. It's about humility. It's about giving up some of the notions that we grew up with or some of my political thoughts that do not line with God's word, and then I repent of those things. 
Those who do not grow stay in their system and in their group think. Too stubborn to change or repent. When we grow, we realize we're wrong more times than we'd like to think. And then we are to humble ourselves. And you know what? Set ourselves aside and get on with the business of the mission that God has us on. And those who humble themselves can see the fruit. We can do these things because we are enlisted by the God and creator. The God of heaven, the God of this earth enlists us Signs us up. We made a deal that we'd follow him. That means I have to give up some of my ideas on what I thought my life would be like, on what I thought the world should be around me, because it didn't turn out the way I thought. He determines my life. He determines the ending of my life. It's in Christ both ways. So why am I worrying about the in-between? Once you've settled our life is his and how it ends, then I don't worry about the in-between. Right? For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Either way, I win. Right? Let's pray.